Hi, Sarah. Hi, Allison. Happy Blur's Day. What? Happy Blur's Day? What are you talking about? <laughs> it's just this little word, Blur's Day, that I've learned、uh, in the UK. It's basically one day just blurring into another as we continue to wade through this second lockdown. Ah, okay, all right. Well, yeah, we are still in lockdown, though. Of course, that's lifting soon, right? But that hasn't stopped people here in France from demonstrating. Of course,、um, this weekend it was to contest a security law, which is currently going through the French Parliament. Yeah, so the law is aimed at strengthening, for example, the municipal police and clarifying the role of private security groups. This comes after months of demonstrations. Of course, we had the yellow vests and against the pension reforms, all that,、um, and then incidents of police brutality in these demonstrations. Police also are feeling understrained and, you know, underappreciated to some extent.、Um, but the part of this proposed legislation which has really got people onto the streets protesting is Article 24, which would limit. The filming of the police and then spreading those images around on social media. Yeah, and images of police violence by made by journalists and amateurs have revealed serious incidents of police brutality and have led to officers being prosecuted. So yeah, on Saturday, some 25,000 people nationwide,、uh, journalists, photographers, but also yellow vests,、uh, were out on the streets、uh, here in Paris. They were chanting "No to a police state," and everyone is allowed to film the police. The Interior Minister, who is the police boss here in France, has said that journalists and citizens will still be allowed to film as long as the images are not used, quote, with intent to harm. Yeah, and that that's part of the law, but of course, with intent to harm is very vague, and that is the big concern. Our colleague Mike Woods was at the demonstration in Paris. He spoke to Thibault Isoré, who's a photojournalist with the daily newspaper Le Figaro. He's been taking pictures and filming protests over the last four years, and he sees the proposed law as a danger to journalists and to democracy. Of course, the main reason of this article, and this is stressed by the politicians,、uh, it's to protect policemen and women to be harassed or to be the targets. But for me, as a journalist, I've witnessed it. There's a huge difference between what the law can tell policemen to do and what they actually do on the field,、uh, like、um, you know, to check our bags, to force us to show our professional card. All of this is not on the law, but it's actually done here on the field. And just for me, a few minutes ago, I was forced to show my bag and to show my professional card. But I don't have to have a professional card to be a journalist. How have you seen just relations evolve between journalists and police? Well, as a journalist for four years on the streets, I've、uh, always seen a good agreement between policemen and journalists. They all know what we do. We all know what they do. And for the first time this week, I've seen a big difference. That's the first time as a journalist that I'm told to leave the field to not show what's happening. As a journalist, I've never been scared to be in prison. But for the first time, I was、uh, threatened to be、uh, under arrest for just doing my job. 
Now, rights groups have weighed in with concerns about this bill. So we've had the UN, the French Rights Ombudsman, the European Commission. They're all worried about this new provision, which they say could undermine fundamental rights. Now, the law hasn't passed yet, but images in the meantime do keep on shocking.、Uh, Monday night, police violently dismantled a migrant camp in the center of Paris in the Place de la République. Yeah, the pictures showed police upturning tents with people still sleeping inside.、Mm. They were mainly Afghan men.、Uh, one officer was filmed tripping a man up as he tried to get away. He hadn't done anything wrong. Even the interior minister said he was shocked by those pictures, although he reiterated his support for the police. <laughs> So as we said, Sarah, we are still in lockdown, though not for long. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully,、uh, COVID infection numbers in France and the hospitalizations have been going down. The president Emmanuel Macron has announced three phases for us coming out of lockdown. The first one starts this weekend. Non-essential shops will be reopening. Yeah, they're majorly relieved, aren't they, the, the shopkeepers? But、mm-hmm. working from home, which the French call télétravail, is here to stay, and that's one of the big changes that's been brought about by the COVID pandemic. Sarah, you're you're working from home 100% of the time, right? Yeah, yeah,、um, certainly helps with with the new baby. For example, there's a much shorter commute for me.、Um, it is amazing what technology does allow us to do. But I have to say, working from home really only works because my older child is in school. If she、mm. were here, it'd be totally impossible.、Mm. Um, and I do, I do miss interacting with people. Allison, I miss you. Oh, so, so sweet. <laughs> I miss you too, Sarah. Yeah, I know. One day we will be reunited. We will be reunited. But you know, on the phone, Google Docs, it, it's just not quite. The same thing. No, and it, honestly, it doesn't suit everyone. Personally, I hated working from home during the first lockdown、mm. in March and April, when I was among the five million French who were working from home, many of them for the first time. And it's worth remembering, 2017, only three percent of people in France were working from home, whereas now about a third of the population have tried it out. Oh wow, so, that's a lot more. Yeah, it's it, it's huge. It's a it's a big change actually here in French society. Some people are. Loving the newfound freedom、uh, that they have to organise their own time, our colleague Marie Kezadebe spoke to some people working from home, like Celine Tardieu. She works in the finance department for a company where all the staff are now working three days at home and two on site. Je n'ai pas la possibilité d'avoir une pièce dédiée à, dédiée au, au travail, donc du coup je m'installe dans, dans mon salon. I don't have a special room where I can work," she says. "I'm here in my living room in my slippers. I don't have to wear high heels anymore. It's bliss." Il y a quand même un certain confort, quoi. Il y a des avantages. Je profite davantage de mes enfants. So there are advantages," she says. "I see my children much more. My work situation is much calmer. I don't have people knocking on my door every half hour." Justement. <laughs> so thanks to remote working, some people are able to finally move house to have a bigger space outside these expensive cities without changing their job. Et on veut une maison. Clairement, on peut pas ici. We want a house, and we can't do 
that here in the Paris region, says Laure Bellu, she's head of human resources. During lockdown, we kept saying to ourselves, we'll see, we'll see, and then we made the decision. And my boss said, it's okay, we're behind you 100%. Well, not everyone, of course, has had such a good time of working from home. No, some people are suffering from the isolation. And like you said earlier, Sarah, being physically distanced from your colleagues, depending on your colleagues, can be difficult. But there's no <laughs> yeah. doubt that the French work culture is shifting. Sonia Levalin, professor at the IESEG School of Management in Lille and Paris, has been following this shift and teaching the new management skills that that requires. I talked to her on Zoom in the comfort of her living room in Lille. It's not a French thing at all, and it was really not common. It was not developed, and there were lots of um, organizations that even didn't think it was possible to work from home like that. In France, we are rather in a culture where we're used to physically see the people, to be on site, what we say presenteeism in, uh, in French. And from a managerial point of view, it's for a long time been something reassuring also in terms of culture because organizations and managers could have the feeling that it was a way to keep control of uh, things, of people, of the quantity of work and um, the relationship between work and uh, private life was really separated. So working from home was not part of the culture, a little bit, but not the way it had developed during the lockdown time. So you're saying there's a feeling that managers needed to see people working to believe that they really were. So not a very trusting culture in a way? That's exactly the point. Here we are generalizing. So it doesn't mean that it is the way in all the organization. In some organizations, it was the case, and it's still the case even after the first lockdown period. So yes, there was a problem of trust, and uh, the lockdown for that was really one way to uh, push forward the movement of uh, starting trusting people and, and seeing that it was technically feasible and that people were actually responsible enough and autonomous enough. So that has been a big change. So there was a problem of trust. Yes, definitely. And the lockdown for that, the first lockdown really helped to push forward the negotiation, the mentality uh, from the managerial point of view, but also from the employee's point of view. There are clearly advantages to working from home, like saving time in transport and yeah, being able to spend more time with your family, things like that. But here in France, there's also a risk, isn't there, that employees become a bit distanced from the company. And we know how important it is, especially in corporate culture, that you eat together at the canteen, the, you know, the, the, the coffee machine conversations, all of that kind of thing is actually rather important in French work culture. So aren't we in danger maybe of losing something by having more working from home? Definitely. And so that's why we're also right now in a very specific time because we have removed all the social uh, networking uh, element and informal time. So if we consider a normal situation, this informal times and, and this cohesion time, it's just fundamental for us in France. And it's, it's even very important in terms of collective intelligence because the Collective intelligence really happens when, when people are solving things together. So the fact that they are a part, of course, we can work on Teams, on Zoom, etc. But the flow of energy and quality of relationship and reactivity that we have when we create together, physically speaking, 
unfortunately, we don't really have it when we are working like that from home. So it means that it needs to be carefully organized so that you still have these moments together. So that suggests maybe that we need to train managers in how to manage teams remotely. Is that currently done that much in France? Uh, absolutely. I think that that's also one of the reasons why after the first lockdown, we've seen, first of all, lots of employees wanted to go back on site. And here for this second lockdown, we have less people that are home working compared to the first lockdown. And I think that's a level of consciousness within the organization because they realize that there are some risks associated with it and so that it requires absolutely to train the managerial population so that they can develop their skills in remote management and in management in general because when you're face to face all the informal movement can compensate the, the lack of skills in terms of management when you're remote you have to be a top manager i would say so it's, it's even more what about the issue of equality french people like to feel that systems promote equality but it seems like the very notion of home working in a way emphasizes inequality because some people cannot work from home it's true that uh, that was one of the negative element about developing home working because some people can't have access to that because of the nature of their mission uh, if your job doesn't allow you to work remote it's not a right or natural right uh, that is entitled in people so you have to accept that also and i think people became conscious about it after the first lockdown we we've seen a little bit more measure in the request from people from employees and in the request from employers from companies And so I think it is about finding the right balance and what we've observed here for this second lockdown is that lots of employers have told to their employees you do what you want we authorize you to stay on site which allows you to to work from home so you decide and and we decide together on the organization So how do you see the future then what do you think the french model of home working might be there will be a remote part and it will be necessary to include in the culture the possibility to work partly remotely and uh, i think what will be necessary will be a lots of dialogue lots of communication within the departments within the different teams the organization so much more communication and collaboration on that to set the best organization for everyone that's one of the keys in terms of practices it's much more information sharing and also i think that the teams will need some time to adjust it's moving we're moving forward but we're still adjusting in france this is what we're trying to do so there's clearly still plenty of fine tuning to be done in france before we fully embrace working from home indeed and unions are very involved to make sure that employees are not for example overworked because there are questions about the right to disconnect you know coming offline after your working day there's also the mm. issue of the costs involved in working from home like reimbursing things like your your broadband your heating bills uh, mm. and all the professional furniture and equipment that you might need for working at home right Interestingly Sarah a study in 2012 by the Works Ministry showed that working from home could increase company productivity by more than 20% and that was mainly due to a drop in absenteeism. I guess that's good news for employers. Yeah, it sounds like it, doesn't it? 
But a very recent study has shown that periods of long sick leave have in fact increased since lockdown and that is partly due to the increase in home working uh, due to the stress and depression that it can um, provoke in some people but also the back problems that you can get Ooh. due to having bad posture from sitting on your dining room chair and so on. Or your sofa or, <laughs> or in bed. <laughs> yeah, your soggy sofa. Both managers and unions say that they're aware of the drawbacks and the advantages of working from home. We'll see now if France manages to negotiate a compromise amongst all that. So for our history segment today, um, we have a big one here. This is the law of December 9th, 1905, the, the law that separates church and state in France, and law that we think of uh, when we talk about laïcité. So this is a form of French secularism, and to talk about it, we're joined by Gary Giraud, host of the French History Podcast. Gary, it's great to have you back on Spotlight on France. Thank you. It's uh, great to be back. So we're talking about this law passed in 1905. It deals with religion, but this concept of laïcité has its roots back in the 18th century, right? Oh, yeah, it goes back a very, very long way in French history to the writings of the Enlightenment, of course, the great philosophers Diderot, uh, Voltaire, and others who attacked the power of the church and who believed that if they lessen the power of the church in politics, that that would allow for a blooming of society. Um, where this began to take place in politics was with the First French Republic, with the uh, Déclaration des Droits de l'Homme et des Citoyens, which in 1789 began the legal secularization of France. And so, essentially, after... A uh, couple years, France passed a series of laws which subordinated the Catholic Church to the French state. Because at the time, the, the Catholic Church was, was really very powerful, right? Uh, incredibly powerful. And rich. And that was another thing, and France was broke, and so what better place to turn to than seizing church money and property? But of course, that did not last. No, because Napoleon comes in and Napoleon realizes what better way to rule the country than to get the support of the church. So there was a back and forth as uh, Napoleon and then the restored Bourbons and then, of course, Napoleon III used the Catholic Church in order to prop up their regimes while the Republicans later in the Second Republic and then in the Third Republic wanted to make this separation between church and state to weaken the power of the church because they viewed the church as being in support of monarchy. So, Gary, by the time we get to the Third Republic, what was the state of play then vis-à-vis -vis this laïcité? Well, by the early 20th century, the Republicans are firmly in power. So there are a series of laws. In 1901, the government passed a law that allowed people to form types of associations so long as they weren't religious. 
In 1902, another law banned religious schooling as the state assumed responsibility for public education. And then we get to the big law, which is the 9th of December 1905 law, Le Loi Concernant la Separation des Églises et de l'État, the law concerning the separation of churches and the state. Doesn't even include the word laïcité, does it? No. So this law guaranteed freedom of religion. It upheld the French state's control of many religious buildings, which is why today Notre Dame de Paris is owned by the government, which allows the Catholic Church to use it for services. And there were numerous other regulations that this law included, such as bans on religious instruction in schools. This was not necessarily embraced by everybody at the time. Uh, that's kind of an understatement, to say the <laughs> least, because there was a very angry and sometimes even violent Catholic reaction, particularly when government surveyors went to church property to inventory it. The law was condemned by devout Catholics. So this was controversial, to say the least. So, Gary, laicity has been a bit on the defensive uh, to a certain extent here. It's, it's a difficult concept to understand, even within France, but even more so abroad. We've been seeing that in the States, where it's been debated quite a lot. You're in the U.S. What is it about laicity that Americans find hard to understand? Well, I think that a lot of Americans don't understand the role of the state in France because the U.S. tries to be as little involved as possible in religious affairs. In the case of France, the government is heavily involved in regulating religious activity. I mentioned earlier how uh, Notre Dame de Paris is actually owned by the French state. It shows the importance of history in the formation of these ideas. When you have a country that has so many religious institutions, and those institutions didn't just adhere to the spiritual needs of people, but also administered welfare, education, France couldn't just say that we're going to have society and politics on one side and then the church and the other because the church was so heavily rooted in um, people's everyday lives. And so the French state essentially had to say, okay, we are going to allow religion to be a large part of society still, but we are going to try to remain neutral in this. The thing about laïcité is that there is supposed to be a neutral stance towards different religions. However, it does take an active role in administering them. You seem to be saying that the U.S. is struggling to understand laïcité because the French state is not applying the principles of neutrality. Well, if we're talking about modern politics, I think this is a very controversial thing, particularly relating to the most recent debates that have come up over um, laicite in the wake of this new wave of terrorism. So now Macron has been arguing for removing foreign influence in uh, French native mosques, and also he has been trying to crack down on homeschooling 
and religious instruction, which some view as possibly indoctrination into a more radical type of thinking. And this has not gone over very well in the Anglosphere because many people are viewing this as uh, essentially an abjuration of people's rights, whereas those in France who are on Macron's side are essentially saying that this is not taking away people's rights, this is actually enshrining them. Macron is trying to posit himself as a defender of the liberties of moderate Muslims in France. So it's a very complex issue. It's not inherently new to France, but we're seeing this whole new episode within French history, and we can only wait and see how it plays out. That was Gary Girard of the French History Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I just wanted to expand a little bit on what he was referring to there at the end. It's a bill, another bill that's about mm -hmm. to be debated in Parliament. It's supposed to address the radicalization of some French Muslims. So this is the law called Strengthening the Principles of the Republic. It was mm. first introduced as a law against what President Macron called separatism, which no longer figures in the, in the title. Interestingly, the debate is starting on December the 9th. That's the anniversary of this 1905 law. Is that a coincidence? Maybe <laughs> not. Maybe not. Now, the law would ban foreign funding of imams in French mosques. It would also address homeschooling. Um, it would give all children an education ID number to make sure that they're in school. And this is the part that has been inaccurately reported by some American journalists in social media and has really inflamed tensions. Students from primary school onwards already have an ID number in France. The new law would give the number to all children from the age of three to be able to keep tabs on the ones who are not in the school system. Although we're not talking about many kids here, only about 0.5% of the population is homeschooled. Yeah, not very many, but the government has decided that those who are not in school could be radicalized by homeschooling. That's very much up for debate. Um, not only is it impossible to know in France because it's illegal to keep statistics on religion and that kind of thing, mm. but also when you actually look at the people who were involved in terrorist acts here in France in the last few years, none of them were homeschooled. Most of them, in fact, were radicalized in prison. That's a whole other subject. Well, okay, from a French concept, laïcité, that's hard for Americans to understand, to now an American concept or a thing or whatever you want to call it that's been creeping into France. I'm talking about QAnon. Alison, do you know what it is? Not really, uh, to be honest. I've seen some photographs of its supporters demonstrating they're holding up the letter Q and there's talk of conspiracy around all of this. 
Yeah, yeah. It's a big conspiracy theory. It, it started in the United States in 2017. Online, a mysterious person, an entity calling themselves Q, claims to have high-level security clearance in the White House, the so-called Q-level clearance. Um, and Q publishes these cryptic messages called Q-drops that the followers then pick apart to find evidence of what they say is a cabal of elites trying to take over the world. They're saying that these elites are the so-called called deep state who are undermining everything that President Donald Trump has been trying to do. Um, those include the Clintons, Bill Gates, and the argument is that all of these people are pedocriminals, oh. according to the growing number of QAnon followers in the United States. That's quite a story, but it does sound mm. very American-focused. It absolutely is, um, but it has showed up in France. It showed up recently, at the end of 2019. Everything comes to France in the end, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. At first, it was sites and social media posts, mostly providing explanations of what is QAnon and translating American articles. Um, I know this not because I've gone looking for it myself, to be honest, but I, there's a report about the rise of QAnon in Europe put together by NewsGuard, which is a site that's been working on fighting fake news. Um, Shine Labe is a French journalist who works for NewsGuard, and she told me that QAnon remains fringe in France, it has to be said, but it is starting to take on a life of its own. Um, and I asked her, I was wondering how such an American-focused conspiracy theory can attract a French audience. You had articles that were very early on raising the fact that the deep state was actually a worldwide instrument and that, yes, it was uh, led by the Democrats in the U.S., but that government leaders around the world were acting as puppets of the deep state. The deep state then being this kind of conceptual thing then? Yes, the deep state being a, a sprawling group of elites, if you will, uh, that spreads uh, much more widely than just within the United States borders. So then, for example, in France, you've got like, I don't know, the elites, Emmanuel Macron, for example, the president, is he part of this deep state or is he a puppet of the deep state? So Emmanuel Macron is being described as a puppet of the deep state. That's how you sort of um, bring in the attention and the interest of the French people. The way you're describing it is almost as though this is like QAnon trying to do its promotion abroad. It doesn't seem like it's French people who've been drawn to the ideas and, and inspired to make their own. So we don't, it's, it's hard to say, right? But we have sort of that impression because we've seen some YouTube channels, for example, that are based in the US, but that are translating into many European languages. So, so what is it about France that sort of makes it a little bit ripe for conspiracy theories? I mean, it is a country that has a long history of distrust in institutions. And right now with the pandemic, with the, the uncertainty, the distrust is at an all times high. And so I think that benefited a lot to QAnon because at the heart of these set of conspiracy, you have this idea that you're not being told the truth. And so of course, at a time where people are not trusting their government because they saw them change their minds on what to do, we hear a lot of people say, but look, they changed their mind on masks. So they're lying, they're hiding the truth. So at a time where you have this distrust 
It's the perfect soil for conspiracies to gain traction. Were you surprised that it, it made the leap into Europe and, and surprised by it, the, the growth in, in appeal it is having here in France? I, I was a bit surprised. And, and especially right now, QAnon content these past few weeks has been all about uh, the U.S. elections and uh, detailed in uh, instances of fraud. And I didn't think that that would make it to France and to Europe because it's so detailed. But no, these are are French people arguing the minutia of the American election. Exactly. And so that's been surprising to me. But again, because right now, French people are so drawn to conspiracies to they're looking for answers, right? And so everything that's going to feed this idea that we're being lied to that we're not telling us the truth is going to work. And even when it's about the tiny details of the US elections of a system that is very hard to understand for us French people. It's just a proof that right now, all narratives that are going to reinforce that idea that we're being lied to is going to um, gain some popularity in France. Uh, and because on these sites, you also see uh, misinformation about the virus and they're peddling, for example, Hold Up, which is this big documentary. Yeah, I was going to mention, yeah, amongst all this is this documentary Hold Up about conspiracy theories that have gained traction around COVID. That's now showing up on the QAnon discussions. Yeah, all of these websites have been sharing uh, links to watch that documentary, which doesn't bring in much uh, new myth or new misinformation to the debate. Honestly, it's just a, a very well packaged set of all the myth and what it does is that it carries some emotional points that are not false per se on what it does to wear the mask when you're a kid, when you're a woman giving birth, when you're all questions that are legitimate to raise. But it mixes all that with a lot of false information on the virus having been uh, created by the Pasteur Institute, for example, which is something that has been debunked. And it mixes all that and it leaves you with this impression, again, that we're being lied to. And so, of course, uh, the QAnon followers have uh, seen there something that is very close to the type of narratives that they were sharing before. It's interesting to, for me when I when I hear this talk about this group of elites that's you know out of touch with regular people, it makes me actually think back to the Yellow Vest, um, the movement that petered out now since the the pandemic in particular, but that really brought in a lot of French people who were upset with how things are being run here. Is there an intersection at all? Yeah, when we when we published our report uh, for France, you had two subsets of Facebook groups at the time that um, were particularly interested in the Q narratives, and it's still the case. And those were pro-Yellow Vest groups and groups supporting Didier Raoult, who is this French doctor who's been hailed as a hero in conspiracy circles because he supported the use of uh, hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19, uh, even when the French government was um, was not supporting that. And it shows how diverse Q followers are. I think it would be a mistake to think that it's just limited to far-right groups. It's a catch-and-all meta-conspiracy that allows so many people from so many different backgrounds to um, find something that resonates with them. And maybe the, the only thing that ties them all together is that they are dissatisfied. They are not trusting the government. They feel left out. Uh, but that encompasses a lot of different people. So that seems like it should be something that at least people in power here should be very concerned about in France. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it remains fringe, but it's true that also we have to bear in mind that in the U.S., it started in October 2017, and today it's entered Congress. It took three years for that to happen. In France, it's only started in early 2020. So even if it's fringe, we should not consider it as a problem, especially because in France, we are 18 months away from the presidential elections. And so conspiracy theories might become part of the next round of uh, elections here in France too and we might want to think about how we're going to fight that wave of misinformation. That's it for Spotlight on France. Thank you for listening. You can find additional material, photos, short videos on our Instagram feed. Find us there. Follow us. It's called Spotlight on France. And we do like to hear from you. You can send us your questions or comments to spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Today's episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. You can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back again in two weeks on Thursday, December 10th. Until then, goodbye. Bye, Alison. Bye, Sarah. Bye.